This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, so I am sitting here and I am talking to AJ Hunter. AJ, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm AJ Hunter. I am the owner of Huntlight LLC, uh, a startup saddle company. We've been in business now technically for, this is our second year, but first year of retail. Last year was all prototype and R&D. Um, I'm also a mountain guide and Iraq war vet. Say that last part again. Rack what? Uh, Iraq war vet. Iraq war vet. Okay. I yep. thought you said Iraq. I don't know. I don't know what you said, but thank you for your service. Um, so let's kind of talk about a little bit your journey into uh, hunting. You, you and I talked a little bit beforehand, and uh, kind of find it interesting. You know, adult onset type hunters. You said you had a few experiences, you know, but never really. In fact, you even told me that you were the guy that messed up other people's hunts. Not necessarily, but that's how I always picture it in my head because, you know, you got guys out there waiting and then some guy comes walking past at like four o'clock when it's still light out and right past your stand. <laughs> so let's kind of get into it a little bit and break it down. Yeah. So my, my first venture in hunting was probably like 2011 or so. Um, I was still in college and a buddy lent me his tree stand and I was like, yeah, just go and set up and, you know, you want to be out there at about two o'clock and you want to wait until after dark and they'll come in right around the evening. So I got out there at about one and about four o'clock, I got too bored and uh, <laughs> came down and I, you know, I didn't know anything about sign or location or anything like that. So he just kind of gave me a general area and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, let's just go and pick a tree and set. I just, I didn't know. I thought they just walked around in the woods. 
Um, I did end up buying a tree stand and I had some private land that I could access and I set up in some beach groves, but didn't see anything. So I probably hunted that year, maybe four or five times max. Um, and then it wasn't until uh, 2020 and the pandemic that I really kind of got into it. Um, I had foraged for mushrooms before and spent some time understanding and learning the woods a little bit. So come 2020, I spent more time out in the woods and realized that there was a whole network of trails and, you know, like a highway system that the animals would cruise on. And then realizing that the size of the trail also was indicated, was an indicator of which animal it was, whether it be, you know, a deer, a bear, or a moose. Um, and I got my license again and I just kind of jumped head heads into it. You know, I, I like the idea um, you know, one of the motivating factors for me was I live in a tourist town and when all the shutdowns happened and, and everything kind of came out was a busy weekend. So all of the tourists that were leaving the area kind of, um, pillaged the grocery stores on their way out of town. And I, I thought a little bit more about food security for myself. So I volunteered at a farm. I started foraging a little bit more and I'm like, all right, let's get into hunting. Let's really jump in. And when I dive into something, I dive in head first. So um, you know, my schedule the last couple of years during hunting season, especially once duck season opened was like AM ducks, you know, PM deer hunt, whatever, whatever it was, just try and be out and, and get that going. Was I successful? Not as much as I'd like to be, but that's, that's hunting, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, there's a huge learning curve. And then once you find it, you get bored with it and you end up moving on. I find, you know, <laughs> like there, there was a point with my compound bow where I didn't have a thrill anymore. Um, so then I switched to a trad bow and then it was like a thrill all over again. If I had a little, a little fawn walk by, you know what I mean? Like your heart started pumping because you're like, I've got this stick in my hand and a string (laughs) with a piece of metal attached to another wooden stick that I'm going to hurl at it. Like your mindset changes and, and that becomes new and fun again. And then I had a couple bad experiences with the, you know, the longbow and just didn't feel like I gave it enough justice to uh to keep pursuing game with it and switch back to the compound bow. But then once I started doing public land again, it was all fresh, it was all new, and that whole experience came back full circle again. And now you have yeah, a and- fawn, you know, you have that first fawn walking <laughs> right underneath you and you're like mama comes by later or you know, grandma comes by, I'm whacking her. And that whole thing just goes full circle all over again and you get that excitement new. And it's the same thing with foraging. And speaking of, you know, uh, your foraging experience, you kind of did that start pretty much during the pandemic too. I mean, gosh, we're three years or whatever into this crap now. Like, um, but I mean, did that start then or was it kind of before then or how, how did that go? Uh, so the foraging started before then the foraging started in college. I went to a, a small college, uh, Keene State College in southwestern New Hampshire. And there was a, a mushroom grower and forager that would go to the farmer's market all the time. So I started exploring a little bit more. And then just the thought of of, mung, uh, of mushrooms and the fungus in general, just their nature. It's a little bit you know, it seemed a little scary. Right. And I don't know, I'm an adventure thrill seeker. So I'm like, Ooh, like this is, this could hurt me. And they're only here like certain times of the year. It's elusive. I got to try this. So I bought the, um, the Audubon society mushroom book from him, the mushroom ID book from him. And I just started going and, you know, started then 
kind of waxed and waned with my adventures. Once I, once I really got into the mountain climbing thing, the foraging and that kind of homesteady, homesteady, self-sustainable aspect of things kind of waxed a little bit uh, for, for a few years, but it always kind of comes around full circle. So while I was in college, I was foraging a little bit more and then I really got heavily into climbing and kind of stopped. And then, you know, the pandemic was really the thing that kind of prompted it again. I had foraged a little bit, but it wasn't, you know, foraging enough to put away for, for later use. It was more just like, oh, look, there's some chanterelles here. I'm going to have these for dinner tonight. Yeah, for sure. So uh, do you forage for like plants and other things now too, or where, where are you at with that journey? Um, my plants, I'm still learning a little bit more. I have a few things, you know, up where I am, we have fiddleheads. That's kind of a big thing in oh, yeah. New Hampshire and Maine. So um, uh, in the springtime, I'll forage for ramps and fiddleheads. And still, those are like the predominant ones that I'll do. But, you know, berries, raspberries, blackberries, um, elderberries, and then mint, just anything that I see, you know, and those aren't predominantly for long term use. Um, those are those are for well, the berries, the berries are for long term use. Like I picked a couple pounds of berries, the first round of blackberries a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, maybe I'll go out later on today and, and get a little bit more and maybe try and combine it with an evening bear hunt. I don't know. So, so <laughs> Actually, that's, that's kind of first thing when you said the blackberries popped in my head was, Oh man, sit there, eat blackberries, wait on a black bear. Um, so kind of curious, how hard is it to draw a black bear tag in New Hampshire? Uh, you just have to pay your 16 or whatever dollars it is for the tag. Um, yeah, really? we, we, yeah, we don't, we don't have, um, the only draw, the only lottery that we have in New Hampshire, as far as I know, is the moose. And that is, you know, compared to, I live like right on the border in New Hampshire and Maine. I have lifetime licenses to both, uh, being a disabled veteran. They, they have a really good reciprocity thing there and it's a great resource to have. Um, but Maine, I think offers more tags during the lottery than new hampshire does for moose and right now maine is also doing they're trying to cull the moose herd a little bit in terms of trying to reduce numbers to help reduce the numbers of the tick population because the ticks overwinter on the moose so in one specific zone they're offering up um you know you can put in for your bull or your cow tag and then you can say like yes i'd be willing to be a part of this as well so i think that it would increase the chances at least in my mind that's what i i think um, next year I'm going to put in for my moose lottery tag and, and, you know, pay my extra money as an out-of-state resident, as an out-of-state resident for, um, uh, for the more preference points to try and increase my odds. Cause I think that that would be a really cool, uh, really cool hunt to go on would be, would be moose. Absolutely. I've always wanted to go on a moose hunt. The reality of it is, is I don't think I will ever draw one somewhere for the continental United States. So chances are it'll have to be Alaska or Canada. And I don't really see myself going to Canada to do it. So Alaska is where it's at. So <laughs> one day. So now it's kind of a pipe dream as of right now. But that's definitely something that I would like to do within my lifetime for sure. I mean, just this the experience, the sheer size of the animal, the brute force of it stomping through willows. And just it seems amazing for sure. Um, so... If it's a non-resident, though, for a bear tag, is it still available over the counter? Yeah, I believe so. You know, we have New Hampshire and Maine, actually, Maine specifically, has uh, a good majority of out-of-staters come up. I see, you know, a lot of people from Pennsylvania 
uh, driving around with their, their bear dogs and they come up here to run dogs on bear. Um, and I know Maine, definitely a lot more Maine. I see them in New Hampshire a little bit, but I don't know how much they're running. And the, the beautiful thing about that is in New England, New Hampshire, Maine specifically, we have uh, where I'm at, I'm on the, I'm in the White Mountain National Forest. So we have and a plethora of public land, which is incredible. Um, I don't know the exact acreage, but I'm only, you know, predominantly hunting public land and any private land that I'm hunting right now with the colonial laws, I don't necessarily have to ask for permission. So I will ask for permission for hunting bear from the farmers, mainly just because I want to establish that relationship with them. I don't, I don't use bait. I'm not going to run dogs. Um, I'm going to hunt over the cornfields or I'm going to hunt over an orchard. And the reason for that is we, according to the fishing game numbers, we're overpopulated in my region uh, on bear numbers. So I want to help the farmers out. They're growing cattle corn and the bears are going in and destroying their crops for the cattle. And they're providing a food resource for the community. So if I can, can get a bear that's going to provide me some sustenance to help the farmer out to provide more sustenance for other people in the community that's that's the way that i want to do it that's awesome so now it's got me curious though like colonial laws can you run that down and explain that because that's <laughs> something that we're not familiar with here like in the midwest or i mean even in the west like in the west, out west you can't even corner hop to try and get from one parcel of public to the other you know without permission so it's kind of a, a different concept here. Yeah, so I'm not a subject matter expert on this by any means. So from my understanding of it is if the land is, you know, there's a lot of tax breaks for people who are absentee landowners to own land up here. You know, people have woodlots or they have they have just big parcel of lands that are unoccupied. And even people that have it that's attached, say, um, I know in New Hampshire, if you have I think it's 10 acres of unoccupied land. You can put it into current use conservation. So your tax rates are reduced on it. You uh, have to allow some sort of recreation on it. And then if you wanted to log it, I believe you pay a tax on that logging or a fee on that logging or something like that. There's no permanent structures, any of those kind of things. So what that means is there's a lot of land that people own, you know, hundreds of acres uh, that are accessible without having to ask for landowner permission. If it's posted, you you then do have to ask for that permission. Um, in in New Hampshire, it's not stated in in the regulations that it's you know it's a good thing to ask for landowner permission, especially if they are somebody that lives in that area. You know, if somebody's got twenty acres and you want to hunt their back ten, I'm going to go and ask permission because I want to establish that relationship with them as well. I don't want to just be out there blasting, you know, or have, shoot a deer and have it run into their front ten. Um, and then in Maine, in their law book, they do say that it's not required, but it is recommended to ask for permission. And I think it's always, you so know, interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's just because, you know, we're we're so densely populated in a lot in a lot of the New England area. Um, but then, like, if you look at northern Maine, for instance, there's like almost an entire county that's owned by the paper mills. Um, and that's they offer public access to that. You have to pay to use the roads and the infrastructure that's up there. But other than that, you're, you're free to go more or less wherever. So it's a really cool resource. It's really, you know, it's one of the things that's keeping me staying here as opposed to going out West is I just don't want to have to learn all the laws and everything out there anymore. Oh, yeah. That's, that's super interesting. I mean, cause if you think about like compare that relatively to Texas to where, 
somebody, you pull in their driveway <laughs> and they can start sending rifle rounds down the driveway on a thousand acre ranch and they're on the other side of it. You know, like <laughs> it's just the, the concept and the, the, the whole thing to me, it's just so foreign, but that's, that's crazy. And it's, it's kind of cool. You know, I mean, as long as people are respectful, because I see a lot of people can seriously be some dicks. So like, you know, uh, it, it could be troublesome as well. But like you said, if you ask for permission and you're respectful and, you know, utilize that property, it could be a good thing as well. Yeah. And I, I've ran into, you know, I lost, I wouldn't say that I lost, but I won't hunt in uh, over one of the fields that I hunted and I shot my bear in, you know, so my first year of hunting really getting into it. So 2020 is when I shot my first bear and I shot it over corn. They had already cut the corn field down and the bear had come in. Um, and I won't hunt over that field anymore because there's a development that's right on the outside of that. And the, one of the homeowners of that development owns the right of way through to the field. Well, I had written permission from the landowner of the field to use this field, which also gave me written permission to use that right away. They were giving me a hard time. And I guess a lot of the people in that development decided to band together and all the other back areas of their land that they had that nobody was accessing there were no trails or anything through all got posted so really it would just be me sitting over the cornfield instead of being able to walk into the woods a little bit more and explore and kind of learn and see where they're coming in from to to set up and and better my hunt um so i just said you know what all right it's not worth my time i've got thousands of, of acres of other land that i can go and hunt Sounds like a bunch of Karens. It really does. It sounds like a bunch of Karens <laughs> that are anti-hunting. And uh, little do they know that uh, you're helping protect that resource by doing that. And that's what makes it sad is that, you know, you're there, you're you're thinning the population, making a sustainable, healthy population of bears. You're keeping the predation down on other animals and probably keeping their little foo-foo dogs safe as well. And, uh, and then they go and do something like that to you. That sucks. But, um, so I got to ask you, like, what, what is your primary focus? Are you kind of just an all around hunter or do you, uh, do you focus on bear more? Is it deer? What's your uh, main forte? Meat. (laughs) I like it. Yeah, no, I'm, I want to put some meat in the freezer. Um, I, there's nothing, honestly, there's no better feeling than to, have a meal with friends and family and share the share the meat that I've harvested with them. I think that that's that that's what it's all about. So if I did say, you know, if I had to choose a game specific, I would say deer right now. Um, And that's just because of the encounters that I had last year and then actually running a few more cameras this year and just kind of seeing some of the bucks. It's weird that I'm getting excited about bucks because I know that they for me, they don't taste as good as dough. Um, but <laughs> they do, they all do. It's, uh, I think it's an age thing for me. I mean, a young deer is a young deer, no matter how you, how you look at it. And when you shoot a one-year-old deer versus anything else, I'm going to be honest. And a lot of people aren't going to like it and tell you to let it grow, but those are the most tender. And I talked about it with somebody else just the other night. When you have that meat that is almost pink, like veal, that is some of the best meat you will eat. My kids... When they eat that, they love it, and they just want more and more and more. And I can cook up both back straps in one night and the tenderloins, and they're still going to eat more. So you can't argue that a young tender deer isn't tender and wonderful. And I think a doe, I mean, if you shot a nanny doe and an old buck, you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two unless it's all rutted up and tarsally, you know, 
and and you got all those those uh hormones pumping at the moment right and that's that's what i was more referring to is like during that rut process it's like all right so what's going on you got all these hormones flowing through this buck they're just trying to go and get theirs and that's flowing into the meat and we're going to be eating that and i mean one part of me is like yeah well that helps out you know with with certain things <laughs> yeah um but the other part of me is like yeah you know i don't know i'm i'm definitely not a trophy hunter i i find that there are two deer, two bucks that I am targeting specifically this year, even though here I am, I'm kind of contradicting myself, right? I'm not a, I'm not a target. I'm not a trophy hunter, but I had two really good encounters last year from my saddle and, um, it, it got me going. And then to see them both on camera again, and then to find, um, find one of the sheds of one of them, this just a couple weeks ago, it's like, okay, all right, we've, we've got, we've got to, we've got to close this history. Yeah. I, I know that feeling. I don't really classify myself as a trophy hunter. I've never measured any deer that I've ever killed. Um, never even thought to have one scored. Um, maybe that's because I've never killed one that I feel is worthy. But at the same time, I, I really honestly don't care. Um, if it's a big deer, it's a big deer. If it makes my heart pound, that's what I'm going to go after. And for all I care, it could be you know a spike buck. Chances are I'm going to let that spike buck pass. But if for some reason I really want that meat, I'm going to take it too. So, uh, yeah, I'm more of an opportunistic hunter. I, I uh, tend to chase big deer, but normally that's after my freezer's full and then it's just kind of a pursuit at that point, you know. So I, I'm with you on that one. I feel it. Um, let's kind of talk about the saddle a little bit, though. So you did you initially start hunting out of a saddle? You had bad experiences with tree stands? What happened? Um, so when I started hunting, we'll say like, again, that 2020 timeframe is like when I consider myself hunting, um, I decided to try and hunt from the ground, uh, that entire year from, from the ground in new England during all seasons, archery rifle and everything, not necessarily not doable, but I'm also setting myself up for failure a little bit more. Um, it's pretty thick here. You know, we don't manage our understory all that well in our forests. Um, and trying to hunt in the woods it's it's a it's a bit challenging so i had a couple of encounters with deer predominantly on the edge of fields um and i didn't get a chance to get a shot off i realized that um open stocking <laughs> a buck through a field is uh as long as the wind's in your in your favor if you can hold the um hold the stances every time it looks at you it's it's doable the camo works but it's also not the most feasible way of of doing it so um after that, um, I was looking at, you know, how can I elevate? I didn't want to carry a tree stand. I had already had one hip replacement and I knew that my body just was kind of shot. So I didn't want to carry a whole lot of weight. And then it wasn't until the, the climbing shop that I used to work at that I, that I got out of, uh, somebody was in there asking about ropes for saddle hunting. And they had known that I'd been looking into this method because it seemed like a good transition from rock climbing and ice climbing into hunting and kind of being able to use both skills. So I contacted him, you know, gave him some advice. Uh, he let me try out a couple of different saddles and he's like, Hey, you know, with your, with your knowledge, like you could probably do something in this space. So I thought about it. I hemmed and hawed. And then I just uh, said, screw it. Let's try and let's try and make a saddle. I ordered um, another manufacturer saddle, tried it out, and it just wasn't comfortable with my injuries. And it was, you know, bulky. There was it was 
you know, quote unquote heavy. Um, but it, it, it just didn't meet my needs. So I then set out to try and make a lighter, more comfortable saddle. And, um, yeah, it took about, uh, you know, a year to, to prototype and, and come up with a full design and, um, just kind of settled on it. And last December, or January, or this January, I believe is when I kind of came up with the actual design, settled on it and, and just started jumping in heads on. So, uh, did you have any experience sewing before that, or was this something no, no. where you just all this? I mean, how, how did you learn? What 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 did you do? Did you go out buy a machine just for this? You know, what'd you do? Yeah. Um. So during the whole like prototyping process, I did. There's a local uh, a local guy here, the gear doc, and uh, the owner of Savage Mountain Gear, Rich, who has been sewing for twenty plus years um making outdoor equipment uh you know backpacks alpine climbing packs so he was instrumental in terms of helping me work through the prototyping phase of things i would bring the idea to him he would sew it up bring it back um and then it wasn't until i ended up like after i went to rehab for 45 days that i i realized it's like all right i've got a good idea i keep getting the information that things the path that i'm on is good now that i'm clean and sober like let's jump in heads for, you know, heads on. So pulled out the debt, uh, bought an industrial sewing machine and, uh, and started learning how to make them. And yeah, it's been, it's been really cool. It's a, it's a cool process. It's, it really is. <laughs> so, um, utilizing this saddle. So you pretty much just saddle hunted right out of the gate. Then there wasn't anything else for you. And then with your climbing experience, you, you kind of knew harnesses, all that kind of stuff, started playing around. You developed this saddle. Um, what, what makes yours unique? What makes it special compared to other things? Uh, you know, what, what kind of sets it apart? So there's a few things that kind of set it apart. Um, I look at it as not like coming from an alpine climbing background which, you know, alpine climbing for those of you who are not climbers at all is like, it's, it's fast and light. It's trying to pare down the amount of equipment that you need to bring out with you in order to complete an objective as safely and as quickly as possible. So I look at things and I don't want one piece of equipment unless it's super specialized that can only do one thing. So the saddle is called the outsider saddle system. It's a system, not just a saddle. So the belt in and of itself is completely removable. And I have Molly that is sewn in on the belt as well as on the saddle itself. So the dump pouch that it comes in, you can put onto both the saddle and onto the belt. So if you're going to go out scouting um, or you're going to go to the range, whatever you want to do. And then in future, future years, I plan on releasing more products that are going to incorporate more into the system as well. Thinking about a, uh, a fanny pack for tracking season up here during the snow. Um, and just other different pieces of equipment that people can use and integrate all together. Um, the biggest thing that sets mine apart, I would say, is the overall design and the the pull. So if you look at it, it looks like a cross between a one panel and a two panel system. The biggest thing is the lumbar section that the belt slides into um, that that's designed to go at you know, slightly above your, your iliac crest or the top of your hips. That's designed to keep you in that saddle in case you flip upside down. Probably not going to happen, but worst case scenario, what happens? Um, I personally felt that some of the single panel 
saddles that are out there in order for them to be comfortable, they needed to be a little bit lower. And I could shrug myself out of the saddle if I, if I tried, which meant that if I flipped upside down, I could, I could slide out of it. With that also came in, you know, the injuries that I suffer. So now I've got two hip replacements, my left hip and my right hip. And I designed this saddle when I didn't have my right hip done. So I had a lot of pain. I was bone on bone um, with that hip. So I had to find something that was comfortable to sit in. With this, it's designed to sit basically across the bottom of your butt and that angle of pull is there. Most other, most other saddles, they try to bridge the pull from the bottom of the butt to the top of the hips. And that's what, what I found, at least for me, gave me that hip pinch. Mine, I, the, the pull is a little bit lower. Even with some of the two-panel systems that are out there, you're pulling from the back and the bottom panel into an apex, and I've eliminated that altogether. Now, what that means is you don't have really any back support when you're leaning back. You have nothing kind of holding you in, um, but that's where the auxiliary piece, the back strap comes in that you could buy and lean and then have that comfort of the pull of a single panel underneath your butt, basically like a seat, and then be able to recline and have uh, the support for the back. That's interesting. That's an interesting concept or way to go about it. So you don't get that hip squeeze like, you know, a lot of them produce because they are pulling on the top. So that's pretty cool. Um, what, uh, what, what kind of things are you planning on doing for like the future of like your company? Can you talk about some of those products or no? Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Four in the morning. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky. Um, I, I'm still in that process of, I mean, this is year one of production for me. So it's right now kind of getting my feet, uh, feet ahead of me. I really want to perfect the design the best that I can, whether that's small adjustments in terms of giving people the ability to adjust the pitch on the saddle itself. Um, so I've, I've changed that up instead of having a single prusik on one side, I have two prusiks on both sides now, and you can adjust the pitch of whether it's going to pull from the bottom of the panel or the top of the panel. That's my big thing is I want to take user feedback and really get this design um, dialed in. Next year, I do plan on releasing a lumbar um, or excuse me, a, um, a fanny pack that can integrate directly into the belt as well as uh, it act as a standalone fanny pack if people don't want to slide it, slide it into the belt. So, so uh, that's... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but it just popped into my head right away. So would the fanny pack actually be able to be utilized while you were wearing the saddle as well? Yep, you could put it onto the saddle as well. That's kind of a cool feature. I, uh, You're always looking for better ways to store gear and stow things. So, you know, it's funny because my wife and I had that conversation that, you know, fanny packs are actually making a resurgence. And I was talking about how much I used to love my Bugle Boy fanny pack back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the hard thing for me that I have to uh, recognize is I'm not the end user and my design process comes from my use case. So, you know, even the, the fanny pack uh, idea of having it go onto the belt, my thought process is you have your belt onto your hunting pants, 
and then you have the molly on the back you would then slot the fanny pack onto that and with that though you have the belt loop so you can't adjust it around to see well me again designing for my use case i know exactly where i put everything every time i put them in the exact same space because i don't want to have to think about it and that comes from probably a bit of like you know the add ocd kind of things and the military you know standardizing stuff as well as just in the climbing world if i am in a tough spot where i'm mentally stressed and I need something, I need to know exactly where it is without having to think. So my gloves are always going to go in the same spot. My sandwich is always going to go in the same spot. So I don't need to flip the fanny pack around and look. Um, but again, that creates that constraint for me where the other end users aren't necessarily going to work in that same fashion. Absolutely. And, and what's funny is I am probably one of the most unorganized people <laughs> in the world. Like no BS, ADD takes over. I just, my life is a mess. It's scattered. It's a mess. It's not organized. But when it comes to hunting, I want to perform and I know that I have to be dialed in or even like my daily carry stuff. That is squared away. It's the same. It's standardized. It's always going to be there in the same spot. You don't want to have to fiddle with it. And, and when it comes to hunting, it's, it's absolutely the same. When I'm going up that tree, I have a process, I have a method, everything is exactly the same. And if I try and change that up, it's going to screw up everything. My whole day will be off in the woods. And I want to make sure that I can perform in the dark, in the rain, snow, ice, it's all the same. I totally get that. And it makes sense. Uh, That's something that I think a lot of people don't have that process. and And it messes them up or they're constantly tweaking and changing gear. I will tweak and change gear all preseason. But when it comes to season, I'm not switching my bow. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing, I can't even switch a sight on my bow because then it changes my process of, hey, do I need to adjust my pin? Do I need to do this? It's not happening for me. I want everything to be standardized, streamlined, smooth, just like you said. That's that's something that it has to be. Well, it's kind of funny because, you know, you mentioned in your normal everyday life, you're disorganized. I'm the exact same way. (laughs) You know, everything is everything is disheveled. But it's again, it's those things, you know, coming from the the outdoors and the mountain climbing thing. You know, my pack is packed exactly the same way every time. And I think it's a matter of just having less stuff makes it easier to organize. Um, My life is just filled with stuff that (laughs) I don't even necessarily need. That's true. Mass consumption is uh is a major problem for American culture, especially right now. That and, and the other one is instant gratification, which actually goes completely against the norms of hunting. Uh, you know, because everybody wants something, they want it now. Amazon Prime has totally, totally made it worse for people. And uh you can't even standardized shipping what's that you mean it's going to take me six to seven days to get my product i can't wait that long (laughs) and then it's like every everything is just so fast paced and then you go out in the woods and everything still runs on its normal clock everything it nothing goes with the norms of society anymore it's those animals are on their own feeding pattern they go you know by by their stomach and by the wind and everything that you don't consider in normal everyday life and and it's so fast paced 
you know, every day is so fast and you go out in those woods that it really makes you have to slow down and think and puts you in another headspace. It's pretty cool. I, I, and I know you need that like that as well, too. We kind of talked about that a little bit. Yeah, I there's something about it that's um, it's primal. It, it, it kind of brings a connection back to what our ancestors had to do. You know, I I look at things in a lot of ways of like, you know, people were killing animals with spears and loincloths. You know, we have all this technology. There's no way in heck that I can't like do the same thing. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of wanting to get in close and wanting to learn and understand and test the limits of this gear, specifically the camouflage and everything. And, and, and then my knowledge of, am I playing the wind correctly? So with that, I've had a couple of different encounters. Um, you know, two years ago, I was out on in, on the other, by that cornfield, there's another little Island that I went to and I, I saw a bear out there. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to go out there and, you know, see, see what I see. Cross the river, get up on the island, and I see uh, a mama and I see a couple cubs. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm not going to shoot the mom and I'm not going to shoot one of the cubs while, she's with, while they're with the moms. So I dropped my pack, you know, dropped my rifle, which I probably shouldn't have done yeah. uh, in retrospect. But I'm like, <clears throat> all right, let's take the boots off and let's see how close I can get. Um, so... You know, the wind, wind was coming right at me. Um, I and I could just I wanted to learn what her reactions were. I wanted to see what she could see and what she couldn't see. Um, so it was really cool to to stalk in within 25 yards of, of this big mama bear. Uh, she told her, you know, basically communicated with her cubs, told her cubs to run away. And every time she caught a little bit of movement, you could see her interest that like, wait, there's something there, but I don't know what it is. And it wasn't until I accidentally kicked a rock over that, that she, she scattered and, and left. And I was like, all right, that's really cool. You know, same thing with like the open stock on the deer or, you know, being in a, a, a cup with moose wearing camo and, and everything. It's just, it's to me, it's really cool to get close to the animals. I kind of, I, part of me wants to just kind of touch them but i know that's not the best and very dangerous touch them with a spear but uh <laughs> so i i'm kind of curious then like uh when when you're doing these things do you do you ever want to hunt on bait or do you feel like you could probably successfully spot and stalk a bear where you're at in your area like is that like a feasible thing to do for most people or is it more or less uh, hunt over bait or with hounds or i think for success the most feasible way of going would be hunting over bait or or with hounds in, in the area um i think if you establish those landowner relations with the farmer you know hunting over a cornfield is essentially bait it's just bait that i didn't plant you know i didn't put out there um if you learn the area and see where some of these old you know abandoned apple orchards are that's also kind of bait right it's just i think it's learning what their food source is um and as long as you're far enough outside of town you know that their food source isn't dumpsters so you know finding what their food source their predominant food source is and they're they're foraging their entire way through they're eating like the the beech nuts they're flipping over stumps and they're looking for stuff but being able to recognize their scat and this is what not just with bear but with any creature right like being able to recognize their scat then being able to you know put the fact that this is their scat this is their trail together and that will kind of lead you more towards their food source ideally i would love to shoot a big bear 
in the woods, you know, um, just kind of doing the, the tracking spot and stock combination kind of thing. Um, but it's, it's very, very unfeasible to do. Um, I I think that's a very challenging thing, which is why I'm drawn towards that. I it's, it's the challenge. It's the pursuit that, that draws me as much as the success does as well. Absolutely. Just not a good way to fill the freezer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, these apple orchards, you mentioned that and it kind of just pops in my head. You know, I, I think about it and all these abandoned apple orchards, do you, uh, do you tend to go there and pick apples and find some feral apples and different stuff like that? Because I'm always so curious about like feral apples and I yet have yet to find like a big orchard of apple trees that have just grown over the past, you know, 50 years and everyone tastes different. And It's so cool to see that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's actually part of my plan this, this evening is, um, is to go out to an old orchard um, and I'm, this is going to be over in Maine because Maine, they don't have Sunday hunting right now and New Hampshire does. So I'm like, all right, well, I can hunt Maine this evening and then come back over here and hunt New Hampshire tomorrow. Um, so I'm probably going to go to this old orchard, which has, you know, apples, a bunch of different apple trees. There's old grapevines, um, that are out there as well. So I'm going to also, you know, do a combination forage, bring some stuff back to make some, you know, apple butter, um, and maybe make some grape jam as well as, you know, see if I can't shoot a bear. I was out there during grouse season last year and, um, did encounter, uh, shot a couple of grouse out there, but also heard a bear out in the wood line. So it's like, okay, well, if I bring the saddle out, I get elevated. I have a greater potential of, of putting an arrow through the bear. And I know I could use a rifle, but there's something about me that's like dead set on wanting to arrow a bear this year. No, that's totally cool. For me, like the whole wild apples, you know, like the feral apples thing, like, I don't know about you, but when I first found out that, that every single seed from an apple will produce a different tree, it was like, boom, my mind was just blown. And I'm like, wait a minute, every single apple I eat from the store is a clone. Like they all came from the same tree and they just keep grafting over and over again. Like that was just like mind boggling to me. Like, did you have the same experience with that or how, how was it when you first found that out? Yeah. When I first learned that I was, I was kind of intrigued by that. And then also to find out that you can have, you know, if you've got a, an apple tree, right. You can graft different varieties <laughs> of apples onto that same tree. So you can have an apple tree that's got four or five different varieties on it. It <laughs> just like, wait yeah. a second. It blew my mind. And I mean, I grow my own, apple trees I, I didn't have much luck this year with uh with actual crops of apples you know like my yield is going to be pretty small some trees i can't even hardly get to produce but uh it, it's just it's fascinating to me all that kind of stuff um but uh so do you do you collect them and you make like cider and stuff out of them too or what do you do um, not cider. And I haven't gone out last year. I didn't, I didn't do too much, uh, just with life going on, but the year before I went out and harvested a bunch of apples and grapes and made uh, apple butter and then made just grape jam. That's um, awesome. That's kind of, that's kind of the thing that I do. I don't have a, a cider press right now. That would be in the future. I'd like to do that. Um, you know, then make some mold cider and have a, have a good old time there. Sorry, I see a gray squirrel out my window and squirrel. squirrel season as well. <laughs> no, that's totally cool. That's totally cool. Um, so bear hunting, you're 
not hunting over bait, but you're using natural bait to kind of use it. I mean, have you ever put out bait piles or anything like that then? I have not, no. You know, I think the only thing that I'll, I, I'd get a permit for for a bait pile would be um, to be able to hunt over, you know, the carcasses for, for coyotes. That would probably be the only thing that I would do. Okay, so you have to get a permit for a bait pile then. Yeah, yeah, for, for all of them, for coyotes and everything. So how, do, how does that work? Like, you just pay the money and it's just another way to collect a fee or what, I, what's the deal? Uh, I don't know, to be honest, because I haven't done it. I just, um, when I would dispose of, like when I disposed of my deer last year and the roadkill deer that I picked up, I just bring it out into the woods and let it do its thing. Um, I haven't, and I haven't put forth a whole lot of effort to just actually go out and hunt coyotes. I did have a coyote come in last year when I was in the saddle. Um, that was a, a screwed up day. It was the day after I took a took a shot at a nice six point buck who had run down the run down the mountain. I was hooked into my rope. I had my rifle slung about slung over my back, and I was about to start climbing. So he stopped twenty yards, just broadside, turned his head and looked at me, and just continued to trot down onto his rub line. Um, and I took I took a shot that I shouldn't have taken because it was too thick. But I'm like, I've got forty five seventy. This is going to punch through anything. <laughs> didn't hit a single thing i think i hit a sapling and it, and it sent it off so the following day i was back out i was up in the saddle and i had that same six point buck come in but i hesitated i had a perfect shot on him too but i hesitated i'm like ah i don't want to i don't want to screw this up i screwed it up yesterday i don't want to take another shot he came in took a leak and then ran off and then like 20 minutes later this coyote ran down the hill and um again didn't take the shot because at first i was like wow that's a really weird looking coyote it, it was a uh, very scraggly it had long hair it looked almost like a collie so i'm like wait is that somebody's lost dog it's like nope yeah. that's just a long-haired coyote no, that's cool yeah it's the time of year where they're starting to look mangy and shed their summer coat and get that winter yeah. uh, fur established so you know that's pretty cool um just kind of wondering then like I saw something that you posted the other day and it piqued my curiosity because I have not ever found one yet, but you found some lobster mushrooms. Oh yeah. So those are kind of tell me about that. Like the whole experience, how, you know, did you, were you specifically looking for them? What kind of terrain were you in? What, uh, what was the process there? Um, so I wasn't specifically looking for him. I was actually out with, uh, with a buddy and he wanted to learn a little bit more about deer hunting, um, and just kind of sign and stuff. And it, I just, I, f- first I want to say, I find it very odd that like in the group of people that I know, I've become the subject matter expert on, <laughs> uh, on, on hunting because I've only been doing it for a couple of years and it's, I still feel like an imposter and that I don't know what I'm doing because I, but anyway, um, so I brought him out to an area where, I had uh, definitely seen a lot of sign. I had an encounter with a doe um, a few weeks prior to that when I was out filming, which, you know, never set up a camera and then also film content in the same area that you're going to be trying to hunt, I realized. Um, but went through, showed him, you know, the rubs, checked some cameras. Uh, and and then as we were about to step into the woods, um, there was, I noticed, I'm like, oh, hey, there's some lobster mushrooms here. This is cool. Uh, you know, we'll loop back and I'll, and I'll grab them on the way out. So, the lobster mushroom is a fungus that attacks another fungus. So um, it attacks the, it typically is on the russula mushroom. So the russula mushroom is the base fungi that it, that grows. And then the lobster mushroom goes, or the lobster fungi, like, 
I guess, attacks that. The lobster mold attacks that and turns it into a lobster, which is fantastic. Yeah. So what kind of, like, were you in, like, conifers? What kind of, because, I mean, that's kind of my gathering of everything I've learned is kind of, like, pine needles, acidic soil tends to be the prime environment for those mushrooms to grow. Yeah, I would say it was um, definitely a mixed deciduous conifer forest. Um, more, I'm trying to think exactly. With very, I would say evenly spread, probably uh, like a 60-40 deciduous uh, to conifer. Um, and I was uh, like 10 yards away from a dried up stream bed. Okay. Um, so um right on the edge of the forest, right on the edge of the woods, kind of where the deer had been making their way in and out of the woods right there. So slightly compacted soil. And that's what I've noticed as well, too, in, in previous years. I mean, I found I found uh, a bunch of them. My the favorite kind of most ironic story was I was up in northern Maine by um, Little Lobster Lake uh, <laughs> up there and we were camping out and I just went for a little walk and on the ground right by the campsite, again, trampled soil in that conifer, you know, forest found a good run of lobster mushrooms right there. So I just thought it was appropriate to find lobster mushrooms by a lobster lake. <laughs> That's awesome. I have never yeah. found any. And uh, I, I, I don't know why. Maybe they just, there's not that many around here. Maybe, you know, mushrooms aren't getting attacked by the parasitic fungus. I, I don't know what it is i'm sure they're around i just i have not found any and that's like one of the things i really 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 want to try and find what i found was cool is i found uh, uh agaric mushroom the other day or I, i'm not saying that right but uh i i didn't know what it was and couldn't identify it and it turned out it was a woodland uh agarius agarius i is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. But basically a white gilled mushroom that I thought, oh, maybe that's not edible and took it and tossed it aside after I studied it for a couple of minutes. And turns out it's supposed to be like a super choice, choice one. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. So now I'm like, oh, maybe there's more of them. And I keep going back to that spot looking, you know, but haven't found any. Need to wait until a good rain happens or something like that. But uh, no, it's that's cool uh, that you found those and that you keep finding them. Any other interesting mushroom finds that you've come across lately? Um, nothing recently. I mean, I, I keep finding the uh, Amanita caesarea, which is not the, it's not the disassociative Amanita muscaria. It's uh, another Amanita subspecies, which it's interesting. It grows in this kind of, it kind of comes out of like an egg sac thing. Like it, it looks like an egg and it opens up and then it comes out. It's this beautiful ringed like yellow and red um top capped mushroom which is cool if you can catch it when it's still young and the cap is together you can make like slices of it um and then dry them out and just turn them into rings they're really really beautiful and taste pretty good too nice that's interesting because i know a lot of the amanitas you can't eat and some of them you can if they're processed properly and other ones those are one of the ones i haven't really got into yet i found a lot of yellow amanitas but those are not ones you want to mess with Right. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's again, like I told you, I'm, I'm kind of a thrill seeker in some senses. So it's like, Oh, the Amanita cesarea is one of the few that's uh, an edible mushroom in that 
not one of the few, but it's one of the ones that's an edible mushroom out of the Amanitas. Ooh, okay. This is, this could potentially be dangerous. Let's try this. <laughs> I like it. You got to have that adventurous spirit. And eventually I think you overcome that as a forager, you reach a point like we were talking about a little bit earlier that, you know, you, you, you start going, well, yeah, no, I know what this is. And then you eat it. Then afterwards, maybe sometimes you have this little bit of shadow of a doubt in your mind. You're like, oh, did I mess up? Did I do the wrong thing? But that's the fun of it. That's the <laughs> thrill, right? And it, thrill seekers tend to do that a little bit more than other people for sure. Yeah, definitely. You know, I I find I've still got chaga from years back, um, you know, that I, that I found. And then Rishi, I constantly am finding and, and taking as well. So I, I like it all. That's awesome. So AJ, it's been great talking to you and kind of learning stuff about you and and uh, definitely the knowledge that you've gained along the way and about your cool products. So can you kind of tell everybody where they can find you, find your products, all that good stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So um, on Instagram and on YouTube, I am uh, at the full AJ. Um, I haven't put up a whole lot on YouTube recently, but I'm a one man show trying to get all this stuff going. So there will be more content coming out soon. Uh, the business, uh, you, or excuse me, business page is hunt light and that's H U N T L Y T E on Instagram. So at hunt light and then huntlight.com. uh, also hunt light on, on YouTube. And I only have one video on there again, one man show trying to do it all understand i am familiar with that uh that task so it's yeah. it's good to see other people grinding along and plugging along too so uh, i appreciate it and thank you for coming on and talking yeah absolutely Luke. thank you for having me and once again thank you so much for listening to the publicly challenged podcast i hope you enjoyed the show and if you did please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to also if you could leave a review that would help us out and you can check us out on instagram or at publiclychallenge.com and once again thank you so much for listening to the show anglers search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv i'm will cooper host of hunt stands make your mark podcast if you haven't already download the free waypoint tv app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from hunt stand presents anywhere anytime and on any device